travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambin. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting from AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, you can find us online, CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, on Facebook and Twitter, at CyberSec Radio. My personal Twitter account is Bambanek at at B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K or via email John Bambanek Radio at gmail.com J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com uh, We do take questions from the audience uh, for our social media segment so if there's anything you want to know about cybersecurity hacking uh, you see a scam in your email anything like that uh, do write in let us know so that we can cover it on the air uh, in that segment and, of course, there is a podcast version of the show. Just look up Cybersecurity Today Radio in whatever your favorite podcasting software is, and we should come right up. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. I know in this show, uh, and, and last week in particular, we talked a lot about passwords uh, and some weaknesses uh, involved in those. Uh, it is very easy uh, to steal passwords. Uh, and think about it, right? There's probably hundreds of accounts, uh, you listening to the show that, uh, that you have passwords for. Maybe fantasy football, uh, some blog you like, WordPress, Pinterest, whatever. Many of those just are not that important in the grand scheme of things. If somebody gets into you know, your WordPress site or Tumblr, you know, it's, it's no big deal. You go in, you delete whatever posts, you know, whatever, whatever, you, you just deal with it and clean it up, right? No one's going to get your health records. No one's going to commit identity fraud, steal your credit cards. Uh, you're not going to be out any money, right? So you don't treat it as terribly secure, and that's fine. But it's got your name, it's got your email address, and there's a password associated with it. Criminals know that, so they spend a lot of time just scouring the Internet for uh, weak and vulnerable websites to get get your passwords, uh, to get dumps of email accounts, the whole nine yards. The reason they do that is not because they really care about the site they've compromised. They know that you have hundreds of accounts that all are tied to your username and your email address, all that have the same password. And just take a moment to think about how many accounts you have and how many accounts have the same password as everything else. So I could compromise and get the database out of, you know, some site that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but then use that email address or username and that password that I capture from that insecure website and then try to log into your corporate email or your Gmail account, right? Uh, it's a very big risk. It is why there is so much email compromise and financial account compromise going on. And for that matter, it's a big risk for businesses why so many of those accounts are getting compromised and people spend a lot of time dealing with uh, random third-party websites that employees may have uh, accounts on and say, hey, you know, this, this account and password got compromised. You need to go change your password at work, too. Uh, so criminals know that. They, they rely on you reusing your passwords uh, to 
uh, allow for them to compromise an otherwise insignificant site to get into your email. There's a couple of ways to handle this risk. I know I've talked about password managers uh, on the show before, things like LastPass or KeePass, uh, where your usernames and passwords are stored in a central repository. There's usually some kind of uh, password generating thing on there, so when you create an account or have to reset a password, you click a button, it generates a unique strong password for each one that you don't have to remember because the password manager remembers it for you, right? So it's a very, uh, those are very good tools uh, as long as you pick a, a reputable one, uh, you know, and it's going to cost a little bit of money. I mean, it's not terrible. Some are like $10 a month. But those kind of things greatly enhance your security because if your password for insecure website doesn't matter, then, you know, the attacker can't get any farther, right? And it's a particularly big problem with kids, right? I've got five children, a couple are on the Internet. Uh, they like playing these games on Roblox.com. So there's a username and a password associated with that. Well, uh, I don't want it to actually be the same password as my bank account or anything that I care about. Uh, which brings me to one uh, related point, right? All of us, I mean, we'll have a work email address, but we all have a primary email account where everybody reaches us, they send mail to us. If that password is compromised because you use that password for everything else, uh, that's a very big problem, and that's where you can get into uh, digital identity theft uh, in, in the true sense of the word, right? So if you think about it, right, you may have some blog you comment on, you create a username and password for it, right? Say you like NCAA football, so you go on to every day should be Saturday, uh, and you comment on them making fun of Clemson, okay? Uh, no big deal, that's fine, people make fun of Clemson, but uh, you have a username, you have a password, and it's tied to your email account, you compromise that website that doesn't matter that much. I've got your email address. I've got your password. Now I log into your primary email account. At this point, I pretty much have everything, right? If I want to get into your Facebook account and reset your password, it's going to send me a link to that email account I no longer, uh, that I have access to. If I want to get into your bank account or your retirement account or your health insurance account, odds are it's going to send me a password uh, to reset my pa reset your password uh, to that where they can click on it. They've got access to the email account now. Uh, odds are they're going to know what you have access to because there's going to be uh, an email sitting there seven years old or whatever. It says, thank you for signing up for an account on uh, PNC Bank or, or, you know, or whatever it is. All of the information for all of your accounts is tied to that primary email address. If that password gets compromised, I can compromise all of the accounts you're associated to, not just Facebook and Twitter, but odds are banking, uh, investing, uh, health insurance, uh, medical accounts, all sorts of things from there, right? So uh, making sure your email password is secure, uh, making sure your email password is secure is immensely important as a result. So this brings us uh, to an article we saw from our digital uh, partner, cyberscoop.com, uh, on November 7th uh, about two-factor authentication, right? There's a study out there that says most people don't know what it is, which is why I wanted to bring it up on the show. Uh, in essence, two-factor authentication is uh, relying on two different types of information to authenticate that you are who you say you are, right? There are three classes of factors. One is something you know, like a password. The other is something you have, a physical device, a cell phone. 
Another is something you are, and that's talking about biometrics, which we'll go into at another time. Two-factor authentication is usually something you know, a password with something you have, uh, a cell phone, Google Authenticator, any number of things. The reason that this is important and increases your security greatly is that if somebody steals your password, they still need to have something else, your cell phone or another device specifically for two-factor authentication, to access anything. As somebody who's traveled to interesting parts of the world, Russia, China, other places, one of the great benefits of two-factor authentication, when I log in to check my Gmail account in a country that's known for uh, keeping tabs on people in the country, right? How do I know that my Gmail account hasn't been compromised? Well, with two-factor authentication, if any of these governments or criminals or whoever try to log into my account, I get a text message to my phone saying, here is your Google PIN. Right, a six-digit PIN that says somebody's tried to log into your account. Right, that is not as secure uh, as people think, but it is a great enhancement over just using a password. So, if you use Gmail, most of you do, uh, turn on two-factor authentication. Pay attention to what IP addresses are logged in at any given time, because you get those proactive notifications that somebody's trying to log in, and if it's not you, and you'll know, uh, you can take some kind of action based off. So we're going to take a short break right here. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanak will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. A couple other news stories, updates, actually, uh, to some things we've previously covered. Uh, in the past week, Equifax was on Capitol Hill this week, uh, again, talking about the breach of 145 million Americans' uh, financial records and uh, many other people around the world. Uh, so uh, a lot of investigation and digging into exactly what's going on there. But there's one big privacy implication that, that I thought was underreported. I actually didn't notice it in uh, the, the exchange and some of these details until uh, I was actually researching and doing show prep for this uh, about how Equifax approaches. And a lot of companies do approach data this way. A lot of people and a lot of consumers and potentially some of you, you know, are kind of concerned or confused exactly how Equifax gets this much sensitive data about consumers. Uh, we don't opt into it. We don't give them permission. Uh, none of that. It just so happens that because we buy a house, we buy a car, we have credit cards, uh, engage in normal financial behavior, Equifax, and by extension, Experian and TransUnion, the credit bureaus. They get payment history on every uh, financial card or revolving debt account that we have for every month. They know we were, you know, once seven years ago, we were two days late on a payment. Anybody who's tried to collect data on us, they get that information. Uh, so they have a ton of information about us. We've never gave them anything. You know, we've never entered into any transaction with them. They have all this information and we can't opt out, which has caused uh, some consternation in terms of, uh, you know, why this arrangement exists. 
from Equifax's uh, perspective, all the data they lost was their data. It was not your data or my data. It was their data that they lost. We have no rights to tell them to delete it. We have very minimal rights to actually challenge and, and correct incorrect data in this report. Uh, you know, but from their perspective, you know, there is no opt in. There is no opt out. This is just how the economy works. And you, American consumer, need to deal with it. Uh, that attitude uh, speaks volumes as to why there didn't seem to be basic due care in protecting this information in the first place. It wasn't your data or my data. It was their data, and we have no rights to it to begin with. So uh, uh, one particular exchange uh, from Senator Gardner right, asked, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, confirmed, right, with, uh, you know, uh, one of the Equifax executives, right, that all the data is owned by Equifax, it's their data, you know, and asked him, hey, you know, do you think it's right? You know, to which Equifax says, I think it's not my perspective to say it's right or wrong. Uh, and certainly, uh, another senator asked, you know, hey, uh, you know, do uh, you know, why don't you offer in an opt in or an opt out? Right. To say that, you know, I don't want Equifax storing my sensitive financial data. Right. Uh, Equifax responded. That's part of the way the economy works. The consumer doesn't have a choice. Um, you know, and that, like I said, creates real risks. I've talked a lot about on the show uh, of privacy of people needing to take charge, knowing what vendors uh, they interact with, how they're using their data in this key segment, right? There really isn't anything to empower you, right? The only thing to say, oh, well, I can get, you can get a free annual credit report or you can pay these same credit bureaus to have credit monitoring service. You can pay these same credit bureaus uh, money to halt people requesting your credit report so that people cannot defraud you. Uh, it is, it is very a pathological economic model that result, resorts in, you know, they're not really taking any real effort, uh, to protect your information and this being breached. Um, so, uh, like I said, there isn't much I could say, uh, to you except, you know, assume that your data at Equifax has been breached. Um, and it involves a lot of information, your address history of places where you've lived for, I believe, upwards of 10 years, every financial account that you have and the payment history of that financial account, right? Uh, can know that, oh, you know, you've got uh, a Ford Focus uh, that you bought in 2013 and it's green. Um, so uh, there's a lot of sensitive information in these credit files. Uh, we still really don't know who stole them or what they did with that data. Uh, the investigation still is ongoing, but uh, you can contrast uh, some of these conversations with, with how this takes place in Europe under a, uh, a new law that takes uh, effect in May uh, 2018 uh, called GDPR. Uh, in Europe, right? Yeah, you own data about you, right? If it's non uh, non public or personal information about you, uh, you have a right to be forgotten. You have a right to know what people are doing with that data, uh, and uh, you know it's very rigorous. Uh, in some ways, too rigorous. But that's a topic for another day. In the U.S., uh, you know, you have companies like Equifax, Experian, TransUnion who store this data. You've got no say on it. Uh, it's transparent to you, and often it might not even necessarily be part of an agreement. Right? If somebody believes they owe you money, they go to a debt collector to collect it. Those debt collectors report that to a credit agency. You have no say over that, uh, even if the debt is invalid. Um, you know, it's just because somebody uh, thinks you owe them money and they report it to uh, the credit unions as a coercive tactic. So, um, 
you know, there's a, a lot that's going to be happening to the system. Uh, I know there is legislation in several uh, states to at least make credit freezes free, right? You know, so you have the ability to say no one can request my credit report unless I allow them to to view it right which prevents uh, people from getting lines of credit in your name if you haven't done that take a look at that kind of a service uh and see what your state's doing uh you know many people listening here uh on the radio version not the podcast version are from florida i believe the florida legislature is considering a similar law so you might want to rate wait for a credit freeze until they make it free uh, but certainly that's a good way to protect your financial information to prevent people from uh, defraud your uh, identity. Uh, but certainly keep in mind that any financial transactions you don't make, uh, you're ultimately not liable for. There may be time on a phone or letters or notarized documents or whatever, uh, but you're not going to be out that money as a consumer. Businesses have a different set of risks. So uh, certainly uh, uh, keep all of that in mind in terms of protecting yourself. Uh, so one other story I wanted to uh, bring up that I noticed, uh, one, I know this is a lot of conversation generally happening in, in my industry and elsewhere, uh, but an article I saw online from Kaspersky, or based on uh, research from Kaspersky, that uh, you know women as early as 16 years old have decided they don't want careers in cybersecurity. I know there's a lot of attention in, in cybersecurity generally, of uh, more representation of women uh, and how to make the women who work in the industry, uh, you know, uh, feel comfortable working in there. Uh, like many other th industries, uh, there's certainly been uh, allegations and incidences of misconduct, uh, which we see mushrooming all over all over the country right now, from Harvey Weinstein to uh, state capitals near you. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of focus right now on uh, finding ways to get women into technical careers and uh, cybersecurity specifically. I know there's some, there's women I work with, there's women I, I employ on my teams, uh, but certainly uh, they're a minority. But it, I noticed that it was interesting, right, that, that women are deciding against this uh, as early as 16 years old. So certainly uh, that's worth digging into finding the reasons uh, for that. So we're going to take a short break here, uh, and we'll be right back after this break with Chris Bing from Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambinek. You're listening to John Bambinek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now, Chris Bing from Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, John. All right. So this week uh, over at CyberScoop, you covered uh, an interesting story about uh, about our friends from the motherland uh, in Russia and what they're up to, uh, specifically that they were using uh, the New York City terrorist attacks that uh, happened recently uh, as a lure to try to infect others and uh, conduct espionage. So uh, tell, go ahead and tell us what you know. 
So, I mean, as you put a very interesting story, um, the group responsible is one we are very familiar with in the U.S. It's uh, best known as Fancy Bear or APT-28. It's a group that has been affiliated with Russia and Russian intelligence. Mm -hmm. And this week, um, some new research put out by McAfee Labs um, came out and essentially said that they had found a uh, phishing campaign, an email phishing campaign, that was themed to... um, it, it was themed to convince the reader that the email had something to do with the recent New York terrorist attack, mm-hmm. which occurred on October 31st. So uh, the email um, they believe was sent to um, a number of people, but um, in a, in one of the groups were military personnel in Europe. And mm-hmm. um, the, the whole design was essentially to use a recent uh, major event to cause them to click a piece of malware that they would download. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, it's definitely a weird story. Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, I, I just to, to bring it full circle, right, the group is also the one that's attributed to hacking the Democratic National Conven- uh, Committee, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, all the 2016, or I should say most of the uh, 2016 election-related hacking was attributed to this group. Um, yep. You know, and uh, just to generalize briefly, right, and, and you know this, you know, but for the sake of the listeners, whenever there's kind of a big, big event, right, uh, we talked about this on the show with the hurricanes, uh, criminals will often yep. use those as lures, right? There, there's a hurricane, natural disaster, let's prey on people's uh, generosity to get them to send money to fake charity instead of real charity. Uh, but in this case, it was uh, actually Russian intelligence spying on European officials uh, using Allure. Do we know, you said it was mostly European military officials. Are there, are there specifics there? Is it, or are we only operating off of generalities? So um, the clarity and the visibility into this specific espionage campaign is not that well known. But um, what McAfee said was that there was, uh, activity that looked very similar to this campaign that was specifically mm-hmm. aimed at military personnel, um, yeah. likely U.S. military personnel that were based in France and Germany. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and certainly, you know, military officials or, or intelligence targets. Uh, but even then, it kind of goes to, to demonstrate the point, right? We, we, we have this vision of uh, high-tech espionage and what the NSA is capable of what Russian intelligence or UK intelligence or France, Germany, pick Israeli, pick your sophisticated power. But often there, there relies on basic, uh, there's a lot of phishing. It seems to be the predominant amount of it where it's just basically tricking users to compromise themselves, correct? That's correct. And what this really shows um, is not necessarily that the group is sophisticated or not sophisticated, what it shows is that they're willing to use the cheapest, uh, most sort of reliable in many cases technique first. And then uh, if that doesn't work, then they can upgrade and rely on more complex and high-powered capabilities like a zero-day, right? APT-28, this, this, this Russia hacking group, the Hacked DMC, um, researchers know that they own zero-days mm-hmm. and they have a, a great deal of capability. But... The majority of their operations that we know of all start with phishing emails. I mean, they try that first. Yeah, well, and like like you said, they try the more reliable thing first because, I mean, it works, right? You know, ransomware is people click on ransomware and get infected, right? And that's not to 
be victim shaming or for whatever the appropriate term is for this, you know, but it's effective. Some people fall for it. Right. And when you're talking military officials and a terror attack, right. Counterterrorism is on the forefront of a lot of military officials minds, you know, so especially like if you happen to be an American in Europe, yeah, you want to know what's going on back home too. So, um, you know, this wasn't, at least I don't think it was espionage, but one of the most uh, effective uh, phishing campaigns that was directed at me pretended to be by Verizon bill, right? It, you know, it looked like Verizon wireless, all the right logos and everything saying your bill is $1,258 and whatever sense, you know, it's about to click and it's like Verizon, it's every month with you people. And, and then like, well, let me check this link really quick. It's like, oh, you almost got me there, right? 1200 is is too much even for Verizon. 300 I could buy. Here's a good question. Now, did they research and look into the fact that you were a Verizon customer to tailor their phishing email, do you think? Or did they just slap Verizon at the front and then hope that some Verizon customers would open it? Uh, to That's be honest, uh, I have never seen a Sprint or an AT&T wireless phishing email. Uh, right. So I imagine, right, there, there's database dumps, um, which, you know, it goes to another interesting security anecdote. People, uh, you know, there's a lot of databases where, oh, you know, the Hyatt customer email database got leaked, right? And, and I'm just making up a name of hotels or, you know, or Sears, but it's just our email list, right? But that is that, that information is used to figure out who you do business with. And, and we talked uh, a little bit earlier in the last segment about Equifax. One of the most mm-hmm. damaging aspects of Equifax is, is not only right, all the financial information's out there and social security numbers and addresses and all that kind of stuff, but every financial account you have is in your credit report. So I know who's banking with Citibank and Discover and PNC and, and pick whatever. So now I can tailor those messages accordingly, say, no, you know, I'm targeting John Bambanek. You know, I know he has a, you know, a Citibank Platinum card because he makes all this, this mad radio money. So I'm going to go send him a tailored <laughs> phishing attack, um, you know, uh, pretending to be a City Platinum card. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sophistication even on the criminal end of just how they manage their data. Uh, and I said, you, you make a good point that, that you know, I, I don't know to what extent Russia does that or not, um, except in one sense is one of the ways that, right, the same hacking group was effective with uh, the DNC, was effective in hacking uh, the French uh, president's political party and getting those emails, is that they figure out who you do business with, right? They figure out who your partners are and they impersonate them in the case of DNC, uh, MIS departments did tech support for the DNC. So they registered a domain, misdepartment.com, with a TNR transposed, where if you were looking, you probably never would have noticed it. You would have skimmed past it because the human mind corrects for minor errors like that. Uh, they created fake NMARSH domains to steal uh, passwords. And, and that's ultimately how this phishing operates, right? There may be a couple letters transposed. They may be relying on, on links to impersonate basically trusted third parties, right? So, uh, you know, the attacks are more likely to succeed. No, that's, that's a very, very good point. And, you know, one thing to bring up here is that um, with this uh, New York City terrorist attack-themed uh, phishing campaign that McAfee attributes to APT28, Fancy Bear, mm-hmm. um, the researchers don't know 
who sent the email. They were able to obtain the phishing email and analyze the malware in the phishing email and the attachment mm-hmm. of, the, of the email. But they don't really know, you know, who sent it, how it looked like when it uh, arrived to specific targets. Um, a lot of what ABC28 does, as, as you rightfully mentioned, that's, you know, very creative is that occasionally they will impersonate or even hack a secondary target to then get to their true target. Absolutely right. So I think there's some good information there of, yeah, this is uh, an intelligence agency, but lessons you can learn to protect yourself in your own email. So uh, coming to the end of the segment, so we need to take a short break. Uh, Thank you again, Chris Bing, for being on the show. Thank you, John. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we will be right back. You're listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, just finished up there with an interview with Chris Bing. Interesting information there from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. So go on, uh, surf on over there to get more great content and some of their reporting on what's going on in D.C. and the world uh, regarding cybersecurity. So change gears here for our last segment. Uh, it's our social media segment. We take your questions from the audience uh, on what you want to know about cybersecurity, uh, uh, things that uh, you've read about in the news, scams you're seeing in your email or Facebook, uh, and what to do about it. So if you have questions yourself, you can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio uh, or email at JohnBambanekRadio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com, or our website, CybersecurityTodayRadio.com. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. After watching the latest episode of NCIS New Orleans, I'm now scared about medical devices being hacked. How serious of a threat is it? Um, I don't watch NCIS, uh, so I don't know precisely uh, exactly what they showed. Uh, but there are medical devices out there uh, that do have security concerns. Uh, unlike in, in, you know, even 10 years ago or more, uh, where medical devices were self-contained, right? A respirator, you plugged it in the wall, you, there was a panel, you set the settings, and it went. Most of these devices are now uh, uh, connected to networks and hospital networks and ultimately to the Internet, which creates a great deal of risk, right? Uh, if I were able to get physical access to a respirator of somebody who required it, I could do things that ultimately killed them. Now, if those devices have network access and I get access to changing the settings, I can kill somebody over the Internet. So uh, at an at a abstract level, right, you know, there is a lot more risk involved with uh, connecting these devices to a network. Uh, but like I said, most of these, these devices, you know, for a variety of reasons, they basically attach computers to the side of them uh, and now they're connected. 
what we saw with WannaCry and some other ransomware attacks that have happened is that uh, these devices are running computers, the same kind of computers that you and I have with the same kind of vulnerabilities. So when WannaCry happened, using a Microsoft vulnerability that was known and published, uh, it took down the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. Uh, there were hospitals and institutions that turned people away. There's a lot of ransomware attacks directed at hospitals also, in part because if you disrupt the uh, operation of a hospital, particularly emergency rooms and operating rooms, right, that's the life and death scenario. You can get real money with that. Uh, not that that's a particularly ethical thing to do. It's just financially lucrative. If you can kick over a hospital, you can say, hey, give me a million dollars and I will turn you back online and you know, there's big money in that and criminals are, are getting paydays as a result. So uh, now uh, the scenario where, you know, somebody reaches out over to the Internet and say, oh, hey, I know Bob is having surgery, uh, so I'm going to have, you know, whatever medical equipment blow up on the table and kill him specifically. Um, that is a less uh, plausible threat. Uh, I mean, theoretically, it's true. But what we're seeing today is mostly just widespread sabotage. Uh, and uh, things that will take things offline uh, so that the availability of healthcare is not there. There, there is definite risks. And it, uh, the big problem it comes down to, you've got people who've made MRI machines for tens of tens and twenties of years. Uh, they're very good at it. Now they put a computer on the side of it so that the technician can uh, view the image on a computer screen and share it uh, with a doctor down the hall. And those are all, you know, interesting features, but they don't know much about securing operating systems. And like I said, they rely on operating systems that have the same vulnerabilities uh, that everything else has. Uh, so uh, certainly there are risks out there, and it's greatly complicated by the fact, I know on this show we talk about updating your computer always keep your computer updated and patched with medical devices there's a rigorous certification process going in there right if i'm applying the latest update for microsoft windows to an mri machine you know there's real questions about whether you have to go back for uh being recertified by the fda uh and uh, all of that rigor which is time consuming and expensive and and very complicated and we haven't really uh, fully got our arms around all of the risks and burdens uh, associated with medical device testing, but it, as it applies to you know medical devices that have computers attached to them. So it is a real problem. Uh, I don't know what to tell you as a consumer to protect yourself. Ultimately, it's something for the healthcare industry to do. Uh, they're very aware of the problems and the risks. Uh, there are probably hospitals in this listening audience uh, or listening area that have had uh, ransomware attacks that have been heavily disruptive to their ability to uh, do the work of healthcare uh, and have paid ransom. So uh, certainly everybody's aware of the problem. A lot of people are working on it. And certainly it's a great way, great way to contribute. I was talking to a student last night who wants to get into cybersecurity uh, in part to deal with cybersecurity of healthcare institutions and managing uh, the risks of, of things up to and including ransomware or the theft of medical records. So uh, certainly we need more help. Uh, if you are tech savvy, uh, have a little bit of understanding of security, this would be a great place to jump into. So um, I wouldn't suggest that, uh, you know, your, uh, your respirator just going to start killing people, you know, but things could get uh, locked up and blue screened. Uh, so it, it could 
interrupt the ability of hospitals and institutions to continue to provide health care. Uh, many of them have disaster recovery plans to figure out ways to do things, even if things fail, right, for power outages, hurricanes, and the like. So uh, there are procedures in place to deal with it, but we really need to do much more. So uh, that being said, uh, the kind of portrayals of hacking in TV shows and movies, many of my fellow uh, security professionals always get a big laugh out of it because it is uh, taking an awful lot of artistic license uh, in showing some of these risks, right? You know, the way they show it is not necessarily plausible, you know, but there are things that we need to be doing. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, doesn't scare you too much. Like I've said before, uh, there's unlimited job security in this industry if you want it. Uh, by all means, if you've got aptitude, training, skills, jump in. Let's help solve this problem. So our next question, I'm a small business owner. I'm consistently worried about hacking. What can I do? So steps that, uh, you know, your, your small business can approve on cybersecurity. Hospitals, you know, have some resources. They have some regulations and things that, uh, they have to be doing. But small businesses, a five, ten person, uh, shop is uh, a much more difficult, uh, problem, right? How do you do things when you don't have a huge amount of money to spend on IT? and you're not going to hire workers, so on and so forth, right? So uh, some tips for you. Always always be patching. Keep your systems up to date as much as possible. Uh, keep all the applications you're using up to date as possible, things like Java and Adobe Flash, so on and so forth. Have your, your systems patched as much as possible. It doesn't cost you a thing. Uh, usually the updates are free. Uh, take advantage of free training or get employees trained. Uh, and educated. Often there are uh, low-cost events uh, nearby. B-Sides, B-S-I-D-E-S, uh, has uh, events uh, all over the country that are very uh, inexpensive to go to where people can learn from each other. Uh, and certainly, I think we talked last week about ISC2 chapters and ISACA chapters, which are, are both in uh, the Orlando and Tampa areas. But really, a lot of security comes down to having trained people who know uh, at least how to spot problems and know how not to be victims. And even for people who are not handling your technology, uh, take advantage of resources like Stop, Think, Connect uh, that uh, provide cybersecurity awareness training so that people can know how they uh, don't become victims. Right. Good password management. Don't have people uh, sharing passwords as much as possible uh, is also very important. Uh, and backups. Right. We've talked about ransomware a little bit. It's come up on the show from time to time. Right. If you get a computer with ransomware that that's got your customer lists, it's got, uh, you know, your accounting software, all of this stuff that's important for your business operations. Make sure that you're taking a backup of it somehow, right? You know, odds are you're probably not going to get a tape library to back up things to tape, you know, but if you use an external hard drive, you know, make sure, you know, on a regular basis, you're storing that stuff to an external hard drive and then unplugging it and taking that hard drive somewhere else. That does bring us to the end of our show. I hope you've uh, gotten some great information out of this. To connect with us online, CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. Uh, and again, a thank you to our radio affiliates, AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and some of that lovely Florida weather. 
weather. Uh, you know, in Illinois, we've got a big Arctic blast coming in, so we'll be freezing, but I'm sure you'll have uh, much better weather in comparison. So stay tuned on this channel. Next week, we'll be back with more cybersecurity news. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day.